Well, um, I love the story. This man was in the hospital, and the doctor had been in a few hours earlier and given him a pretty rough diagnosis. And, and then a, a nurse came in and was just reading his chart and, and said to him, with compassion, I, I'm sure you're preparing yourself for the worst. And, and this man, who was a Christian, said to her, Oh, no, ma'am, I am preparing myself for the best. And that's what Peter is teaching us today. If you have your Bible, please get there. First Peter chapter 3. Peter is preparing us for the best. Even though Peter knows they're going to undergo an incredible persecution, more than likely, and we know what happened, Peter's going to lose his life. He believes because of our sovereign Lord that we are preparing for the best. Peter understands it. After his fall, after his denial... God still restored him and used him. No matter where you've been or where you are right now, God is, if you'll let him, preparing you for the best. Now listen to me. We're talking about more than just optimism and pessimism. Those are nice qualities. But if you're like me right now, in the middle of what we're in the middle of, optimism and pessimism aren't going to take you further enough. I like the story of the two old guys in the nursing home. One was an optimist, one was a pessimist. The optimist guy finally got his courage up to ask the pessimist, why is it that you always look at the glass as half empty? And the pessimist says, no, you got it wrong. Most of the time, I look at it as just empty. Can you feel that way? Or like the gauge of an optimist. An optimist is a person who sees the E on the gas gauge and thinks it means enough. Any of you been guilty of that? You see, we're, we're talking here more than just are you an optimist or a pessimist. What Peter's talking about is are you faithless or faithful? So, let's dive into 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, I want to go ahead and warn you, we have seven points today, all right? I'm trying to make up for Al giving you no points last week. D- didn't he do a great job? That was special. I loved listening to that. So today, we're going to go pretty fast, but these are going to be seven points about how you can prepare for the best. Now, I don't expect you to remember all seven. There's too many for me to remember. But what I want you to do is we go through these is find one or two that you're going to focus on in your circumstances right now. 1 Peter chapter 3, let's start with verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Point number one, invest in a Christian support system. You see, guys, that's why God gave us the church, so that we don't face anything, including what we're going through right now, alone. You see, tough times either draw us closer together or put us further apart. And I'm so thankful in this church, I believe they're drawing us closer together. I'm going to see this crowd this morning. It's amazing. Uh, you better be looking at your email. We're probably going to break out a second service in the next week or two. So be, be prepared for that. So Because we want to make room for everybody and everybody do it safely. Because so many of you are coming because we want to be together. Listen to how the message translation put that verse. Summing it up, be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. This goes for all of you, no exceptions. There's, there's not an exception for any of us that we don't need people. 
And the best support system through a difficult, troubling time is a Christian support system. Are you, are you investing in that? Then look at verse 9. He says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because of this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. I love this next line. For whoever would love life and see good days. That's where I want to be right now. How about you? In the middle of evening, I want to love life. Must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their, their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Point number two, don't let evil change you. You change it. Now, Peter knew that about Jesus. It's Jesus who's treated worse than anybody on the face of the earth who says to his father about his crucifiers, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. It's Peter who's experienced when he did Jesus the worst, when he denied Jesus in his moment of need. Guess what? Jesus embraced him, forgave him, and put him in a position of leadership. You see, you don't let evil change you. You change it. Guys, listen to us. It is so easy in the day we live to let the negative people turn us into negative people, to let the critics turn us into critics, to let the people who unabashedly mistreat people turn us to people who unabashedly mistreat people. It happens in religion when you see religious fights. In the long, long run, you start becoming who you don't want to be. You see it in politics today, though you might feel I'm standing for the right. When you begin to stand for the right in a way that's evil, you have lost over your witness. He said in relationships, instead of this continual cycle of you've done me wrong, I'm going to do you wrong, where things never get better. He says, stop it. And when someone does you wrong, you love them back. That's radical. Because when you stay in that cycle, you never get out of it. Your life becomes bitter. You never know where that's going to show up, you know. You're, you're trying to do the right thing, you know, and then someone just sort of jabs you. Last night we had our, you know, three of our grandkids over, and I'm praying with them before they go to sleep. And I won't name his name, but one of my grandsons, he's praying this beautiful prayer. And then he starts, God, dear God, dear God, dear God, dear God, help grandbuddy not to pee-pee in the bed tonight. <laughs> now, I had just warned him. And of all things, he uses a prayer to get me back, all right? Guys, <laughs> he said, we got to stop this cycle. Guys, we've said this before. Either you are a thermometer and you reflect the temperature in the room, or you're a thermostat and you set the temperature in the room. If ever there's a need for God's people to be the thermostat and set the temperature, it's now. Because we're preparing not for the worst. We're preparing for the best. Keep reading. Let's go to verse 13. Who, who is good? Who is going to harm you if you are eager, eager to do good? The word there for eager there is if you're really passionate about doing good. But even if you should suffer, now that's a key word in this book. Shows up 11 times because these people are suffering, they will suffer. And you either are suffering right now or you will suffer. But in the middle of this, we can be different. But even if you should suffer what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Point 
Number four, number three, excuse me. Recognize Christ as the Lord of the situation. We're running back into the word we ran into a couple chapters ago. He told us that we were to be holy. Anybody remember what we said holy meant? Holy meant you take something from here and you set it apart for here. For something to be holy means it's distinctive, it's different, it's better. The holy temple was a building unlike any other temple on the face of the earth. The holy Bible is a book unlike any other book on the face of the earth. And here's what he says to you. If you're going to make it through tough times, you need to take Christ and you need to make him holy in your life. You need to revere him. You need to set him apart as, guess what, the Lord of your life. You, You see, the key to making it through tough times is that we know that Christ is sovereign. And in your life, you've set him apart. See, listen to me, guys. It's not going to work if you've got, you know, friends and family and school and sports and, act, and, and God. You know, he's just one. You know, you, you love God and he's part of it. That, that's not going to work, guys. He cannot be on the same level. You must set him apart as holy. Because when you set him apart as holy in Lord, what you recognize is that he is in control. You see, the reason that we can handle a pandemic like this, unlike other people, is that we know in the long run, God has the last word. You believe that? Let me say that again. In the long run, God has the last word. Do you believe that? You can say amen through your mask. God has the last word. He's sovereign. So I'm not saying God caused all this. Now, there are some people who interpret sovereignty to mean God causes everything. He's so sovereign. He's chosen who's going to be saved, who's going to be lost. He's chosen what you're going to do and this person's going to do. I don't believe in that type of sovereignty. That type of sovereignty would say that God set up Nero. God set up Hitler. I don't believe that. But what I do believe in a sovereignty that says, God is working in the midst of everything, the good, the bad, the in-between. And in the long run, God will have the last word. In the long run, every unjust thing will be made just. Every place where there's not love will find love. So here you do. You you recognize Christ as Lord. And guys, that's what, this is the real key to this message here. Because there's so many things spinning through our mind right now. We're going through so many struggles. But it's all different if you believe that Christ is Lord. And you set him apart is different than anybody and anything else in your life. Now go back to verse 15 with me one more time. Let's finish it. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. I love this. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. We're going to make two points here. Point number four, live with joyful expectancy. You say, where did you see that in the verse? It's a word that we struggle with. It's the word hope. Because the word hope biblically doesn't mean, well, I hope it happens. Maybe it'll happen. Possibly it'll happen. In the Bible means, I live with a joyful expectancy. I know that Christ is Lord. I know he has the final word. I know he can take anything that's bad and make it good. I anticipate, I expect. And because of that, I'm able to live in the midst of this, with joy. He's got the last word. I love the definition we gave a few weeks ago about hope. Hope is faith on its tiptoes. 
You, you can't see it right now. We don't know what God's going to make of this. It might even look sort of bleak right now, but, but we are, we're on our tiptoes just going, okay, God, when's this thing going to turn a corner? When are we going to see something? When are we going to get to heaven? You see, if, if you have a joyful expectancy, if you have a hope, it changes your present. You know, most of you know, Stephanie you know, I took a, a short vacation last week to Mentone, you know, just we were there for four or five days, a place we'd never been. It was absolutely beautiful. But you know what it's like when you're on, about to go on a vacation? There's, there's always that point you go, oh, you know, maybe things aren't going good at work or things aren't happening royal financially or you're struggling here. But in the back of your mind, you got, hey, Wednesday, we're getting out of here. Wednesday, we're going on vacation. And so even though you're not there right now, it still makes the present better because you're anticipating getting there. And then you get home and it's a real bummer. But you get so. No, I'm glad to be home. But you, you anticipate something good happening. And that's what Peter is saying to us. We get to live with joyful expectancy. So powerful, it leads us to point number five. Be ready to explain your joyful expectancy. He said, your life is going to be so different. And guys, we've got that opportunity. Our life is so different. Where people go, you know what? This is a terrible situation we're in right now. Who knows what's going to happen with the economy? Who knows when we get out of these masks? Who knows when everything's going to go back to quote-unquote normal? And when you live with joy and expectancy and hope, what, what Peter is confident is that someone's going to corner you one day and say, why are you so happy in the middle of this? Could you please explain? What are you seeing that I don't see? What you're seeing that they don't see is Christ is Lord. I, I, love, I love when I hear stories about this. A few months ago when this pandemic first started, uh, one of our life groups, group meets up the Prattful Millbrook area led by Tony Smith, was over at Sinclair's eating lunch for their group. And they found a big table they could be at and they were having their life group discussion. And, and it was on one of those days where we had talked about racism. And so they're having a pretty good discussion. There's an African-American man sitting close to them. And if you know Elaine McDaniel, you know people are just drawn to her. They just love her. She's just got that incredible personality and that love and that care. And so Elaine, though, is obsessed with this guy's dessert. And so she keeps in the middle of the life group looking over that dessert like, what is that? And finally, he just sort of interrupts him and says to Elaine, would you like my dessert? And she's embarrassed. She says, no, no, really, no, no, sorry about that. And she says, would you like to join us? He said, yeah, I've been listening to your discussion. That's pretty awesome. So he joins the discussion. And by the end of the meal, he's standing around the table with them, holding hands and praying about us becoming one. You see, guys, when they see us react to all kinds of things in our culture, whether it's pandemic, whether it's racism, whether it's personal attention, when they see us react in a different way, People are drawn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then let's go to verse 16. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Verse 17. For it's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. Point number six, identify with Christ's sufferings. 
Like I've said, suffering is a theme of this book. That's why we're studying it. And what Peter says over and over is, when you suffer, that ought to make you feel closer to Christ. Listen to chapter 2, verse 21. To this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. And now he says, when you suffer, draw close to Christ. Guys, when you suffer, you're in really good company. You're walking in good footsteps. And you see, when you suffer, either it can push you away from God or it can draw you toward God. And here's what Peter says. Though our suffering may never quite compare to Jesus, we can relate to Jesus. We can identify with Jesus better than any other time in our life. You ever go through physical pain? You ever undergo people spreading rumors and lies about you? You ever been persecuted because of your faith or your moral stands? You ever been rejected? You ever feel alone? You ever feel like you're judged by the people around you? Guess who can understand that? Jesus. And I'm challenging you right now is probably one of the best times in your life and in my life to feel close to Jesus. I know in my life, the most difficult times in my life that I could never claim they compared to Jesus actually made me feel so much closer to him. Now let's dive in the middle of a couple really difficult passages, okay? And I'm going to try to quickly make sense of these. Verse 19, let's go back. After being made alive when he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, it's a real challenging passage. Between Jesus' death and resurrection... We've got this verse that says, he goes and makes proclamation to the spirits in prison. Now, the Apostles' Creed says he went to hell. I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, we, we know from the book, book Acts chapter 2, twice it says that Jesus went to Hades. Guess what? Hades is not hell. Hades to Jewish people was a very mysterious idea. It was an unseen, dark place where people who died with to. And they, they, they didn't have a good idea of what it was. And, but that's what I think is happening here. Uh, first of all, notice this. Jesus' spirit dies. Jesus fully embraced death. He didn't miss out on a part of it. But when his spirit is made alive, he goes to this place I would call it Hades. Now, there's a couple of ideas about what he did there. You know, he may have gone and spoke to those Old Testament sinners from Jesus, from Noah's day, and preached the gospel. Some people think he went and he spoke to fallen angels and demons. Because the word proclamation here means, you know, to announce. So the idea is, between Jesus' death and resurrection, he goes to this dark, unseen place, and he announces victory. Now, the most beautiful idea about this is that Jesus has gone here, and he proclaims victory to some people who are in Hades, and they're allowed to go to paradise. I don't know if that's true or not. But what is absolutely true that we do know from this passage is that Jesus drained the very bottom of the cup of death. 
He experienced death to the fullest so far that he went to that unseen waiting place called Hades. And then the other truth that is so awesome this morning is there's no corner of the universe where the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ has not been proclaimed. He's gone everywhere. It's been announced. And then we go to a couple more challenging verses. Back to verse 20. To those who were disobedient long ago when God wasted patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of the dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So, what does the flood and baptism have to do together? Because this is a rather jarring statement for many people. Baptism does also save you. What is the metaphor? Well, in the flood... God makes a clean break with the past. In the flood, the water buries the rebellious man and lifts up Noah and his family. And what Peter's trying to say is, when someone comes to the waters of baptism, it's a place where the old is buried and a new person is resurrected. Now, now Peter wants to be clear. He's not talking about baptismal regeneration, that it's literally the water that saves you. So he says, it's not the removal of the dirt from the flesh. The power in this water is not the water, it's not the act. The power in this water, Peter makes really clear, and this is one of the great things of his life because it changed him. The power is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You say, guys, i got a problem with baptism that's a checklist. You do this, 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 this. And if you do all those things correctly, you have all of a sudden passed the test and you've saved yourself. Guys, that is legalism. That's false. That's not true. I do believe that baptism is this point that Peter talks about. But what it is, it's not putting faith in me getting it right. It's putting faith in what Jesus did. Amen? And so Peter says, when you get baptized, we're not... It's not about this water. It's not about washing dirt away. It's about you becoming a brand new person because you're putting your faith not in yourself, but in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that, my friend, can save you. Amen? So this is the last point. Number seven, remember how far Jesus came to save you. We often sing he came from heaven to earth, from the earth to the cross, From the cross to the grave, and we might want to add something here today. From the grave to Hades itself. My friends, Jesus has gone to the end of the universe to proclaim his good news. And in this morning, as we prepare to to take communion together, that's the thought I want you to keep in mind. How far did Jesus come to save you? How has he worked in your life to bring you to a point where even in the middle of this pandemic, you're okay because Christ is Lord? And I want you to watch this video of an interview I did with an incredible young man named Devontae Snell, part of our church. And uh, 
He's got an incredible story about how God worked in his life in the worst of circumstances to bring him the point of salvation. Please listen to this. As we talk about hope, I wanted to interview today Devontae Snell. He, he's one of my favorite people because he's so hopeful and so optimistic. And what makes that even more meaningful is to see how far he's come. And like we're just saying right now in the message, how far Jesus went to save him. So, Devontae, thank you for joining me today. Uh, I want our folks to get to know you. I appreciate you having me. Well, you look um, you look much better than I. You look like the preacher today. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, Devontae, let's get started here. Tell a little bit about uh, what life was like for you growing up and what life was like before you knew Jesus. Okay. Well, uh, <clears throat> I guess I should start when I was I was born and raised in Southwest Alabama, a small town called Grove Hill, Alabama. Well, my upbringing is mostly like in the logging industry. Mostly was raised by my grandmother and grandfather, and uh, my mom. She lived in the trailer next door. So mostly rural, low-income, uh, neighborhood upbringings. As a kid, it was just my grandfather spent a lot of time with me. Uh, he taught me a lot of work ethic. and uh, But just learned a lot from that humble upbringing. My grandfather and my grandmother, and there's just the community, my uncles and whatnot. And you know, after high school, I didn't know, you know what direction to go, really. Uh, my grandmother told me whatever I chose to do, just do the best you can at it. Uh, be the best um, at whatever you do. And uh, I went to college for about a year and a half, and I worked in a mill. Uh, so I worked there for about a year, and the expectation was I should stay there, and that's where I should be happy at. And uh, uh, the whole time, I, I felt like I was capable of more. Back then, you can't really see what you can become or what God's called you to become. So for me, it was... Uh, just a lot of uncertainty of how how could I become successful or what was I supposed to do exactly. So I uh, decided to go back to school and I guess I had an epiphany of uh, I was very curious of learning things I didn't know and it mostly led to business and economics and uh, a lot of analyzing a lot of data, put it like that. And I never knew where it would take me, never knew where uh, where I was headed with it, but I I became, I guess you would say, obsessed with just learning because I didn't know a lot, and uh, ended up dropping out of school, and uh, I was unemployed for about four months back in my small town. You know, everybody was like, mostly my grandmother was very supportive still, uh, but the expectation was I should have stayed where I was and uh, made a living there. God was calling me. I didn't know at the time. And at the time, I was I wasn't uh, connected with God. I didn't have a relationship. Yeah. So, so how did how did God pursue you? It's a pastor named T.D. Jakes called it a uh, New Age philosophy, hmm. but uh, a lot of people call it the Law of Attraction. But uh, it's basically applying the principles of God without acknowledging God. Hmm. So that was very early on. I didn't know that it was uh, applying the principles of God. Um, so I began to dive into that. Uh, I guess you would say research and just applying, just becoming a better person, creating better habits for myself, and uh, just having goals and a vision, pretty much writing down my goals and visions and who I wanted to become. And Saturday, like 2016, rather, um, found out I was having my first son. So uh, I ended up going to the Montgomery Job Corps Center here in Montgomery. Never knew where it would take me. Uh, 
at first I would say I hated the place, <laughs> but uh, God, that's where God, that's exactly where he wanted me to be. Uh, I was in rural Alabama, unemployed, and I said I just need to be around opportunity. You were baptized in the last year. What had sort of led to, to taking it from just these principles to I want to live my life for Christ? So, that's a great one. It, uh, this gentleman named Miles Monroe helped me a whole lot. And he talked about the kingdom of God. And I, my wife and I began to, to read the Bible every morning. And then I had small group and I had man up. And I was learning a lot of the word that I didn't know. And then I was coming to the conclusion of uh, everything, all the principles I was applying to my life were the principles of God, Amen. of the, uh, the kingdom of God. I could never explain how the great things were happening. Yeah. Uh, I could never explain how, and then now I can. <clears throat> I knew it was God the whole time, and His grace got me through everything I've been through. Uh, I love what you said, Devontae. You know, beneath all of this is, is the grace of God. I yeah. mean, in God's grace, like we're reading today, uh, is about Him dying on the cross, descending, resurrecting, ascending to heaven. And But His grace is also just the kindness He shows in our life. Mm -hmm. You know, that His hand's been there. So we come to a point in our service now that we're going to take communion together and celebrate His grace and celebrate what that grace means in your life and all of our lives together. So would you mind just giving thanks for the bread and the cup as we um, take communion together? Yeah, no problem. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you as home if you know how this morning, Lord. Well, we want to thank you for who you are and who you say we are, Lord. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for being citizens of your kingdom. Lord, we want to thank you for everything you've done, everything you will do, and everything you're doing in our season right now, Lord. Even, even the things we don't understand it, even the things we don't see, Lord. Lord, we, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the Holy Bible and the words and the principles and everything that we shall apply to our life. Uh, we thank you for your will. Lord, we thank you for you sacrificing yourself on the cross and, and covering us with the blood and the spirit, Lord. Lord, we thank you for making us in your image and your likeness, Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah.